inner peace is the ultimate source of happiness. Because your view is insane. Many paths to what you call God. Atheism itself is a kind of fantasy world. And the God of the universe wants to live in you. God hates you. 11 people have been confirmed dead. Let's stop the killing and choose peace. Blow them all away in the name of the Lord. That was the only form of Christianity I knew existed, and I knew I didn't like it. All sorts of mixed signals going on these days. How are you doing this morning? I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. I don't need a Kleenex, I don't think. As we'll see, if I sneeze, I'll prove me wrong. Um, yeah, so we're in this a series that we're going to be wrapping up this morning. Before I get to that, though, I want to make uh, an announcement that relates more of kind of an update. Um, once a year, we go to our podrishners, all the folks who podcast. We call them our pod congregation or our podrishners. And um, uh, we invite them to help support the ministry here, uh, support the online ministry they benefit from, but also support the work that we do here. A lot of good things going on. Uh, and so this year, our goal was to, our hope was to have 300 people uh, from our pod congregation uh, sign up and become uh, regular contributors. I'm happy to report that we actually ended up getting 350 uh, folks from our pod congregation. We love you, pod listeners. We love you. Okay, pod listeners, you're... Great. We feel like what they do is part of us, and what we do is part of them. And so there's a partnership here that's forming. We asked them to send in some uh, pictures of themselves because they're all very good looking. We're sure just sure of it. Everyone at Woodland Hills is good looking. And so, well, there are some exceptions, I suppose. But um, the, uh, we asked them to, to kind of show us the, the places where they like to listen to the podcast. So, aren't they a lovely family? This is fantastic. Uh, we we actually have. We've got 17 different countries represented there. We have the U.S. and Canada, the U.K., Netherlands, Finland, Thailand, Norway, New Zealand, South Africa, Bolivia, uh, Faroe Islands, Austria, uh, Romania, Sweden, Australia, Switzerland, France. And we even get some uh, signing up from like countries that are just so remote in culture from Minnesota. It's just fantastic, the diversity here. Uh, countries like Texas, for example. Folks actually sign up. And yeah, who would have thought? And so praise God. Just proves that the gospel is, is cross-cultural. All right. Uh, we, lo- we love you, Texans. We love you. And I'm sure you love us, at least some of us. Okay. So we're uh, wrapping up <laughs> this series this morning. Um, and I think we thought it'd be good to end with something that's, I think, on all of our minds. Uh, we want to talk about Islam. All right? Um, Yes, amen. It's an it's, uh, important topic. Uh, let me start with this. Uh, some of you know that three weeks ago, I, on quite a spur of the moment, decided to uh, join up with World Vision, uh, who they have people run marathons to raise money for clean water in Africa. It's the number one need in Africa. A really important thing. And I just, uh, on the spur of the moment, decided I need to come out of retirement. I haven't run a marathon since 2004 and 25 pounds ago. So I thought, this is the time to do it. Um, And uh, I set a crazy goal of $50,000. And feel free to support me if you want, because I got 49 to go. But... um, (laughs) We have till October, so there's no rush. But so here's the thing: having made that decision, the next day I hit the gym. I'm a member at LA Fitness, have been for a number of years, but haven't attended for a number of years. So I, I actually it's been more like just I'm on again, off again. But it's been like it was six months or so since I, I visited the gym. So I decided to go and start getting in shape because it really helps to be in shape when you do a marathon. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, so I thought I'd start some conditioning. Now you go to the gym, and I, those of you who go to gyms probably have noticed this. Uh, some of the younger folks, not all, uh, and sadly some of the older folks, um, 
they're there to get healthy, yes, but they have other motives as well. And they're kind of checking out the place, checking out the people, uh, looking for relationships or who knows what. And so uh, these folks, you can kind of tell them because they're usually dressed for the part. Uh, they put on display their, their ripped arms, their biceps. Uh, they want to show their tight little glutes and, 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 and uh, their, their nice... Uh, hamstrings or whatever, I don't know, their abs, and, and they, they have the outfit for it, they have name brand stuff, they wear fluorescent headbands sometimes with fluorescent laces and cool tennis shoes, and, and they're putting it on display. And uh, yeah, I'm not judging that, you know, that's part of a mating ritual that all cultures have, and it's in, the, it's in the animal kingdom, you know, the peacock fluffing its feathers, you know, it's just like, you know, check this out, girl, you, you want a piece of this? So, you know, it's just part of the, do you notice me as I have my leg? My glutes. Um, the glute girl. So anyways, here's the thing. I also noticed that uh, there's a number of Muslim ladies working out in this, in, in this club. Uh, and they stand out too, but for very different reasons. Uh, they're not interested in people noticing their nice abs at all. In fact, they're dressed out in the traditional Islamic uh, wear. Uh, they have these long skirts and they wear this head covering called a, a, a hijab. A hijab. Um, and they're lifting weights with this, and they're running on treadmills with this, and doing a stair climber with all this garb on. So we're entitling this message, Hijabs at the Gym. Uh, there you go. And it's, see, here's the thing. I, I really respect that. I mean, for one thing, that's not the most convenient clothes in the world to work out in. Uh, I, I mean, when I run on a treadmill for half hour, hour, I am drenched. In, I, I am soaked. Every square inch of my body is soaked. I can imagine what it would be like to run on a treadmill with all that covering. I'd be sweating that covering in the middle of winter, even without running. It's just like, oof, how, how, I mean, that takes... And they know that there will be some people who will be looking at that saying, that is really weird, and they're going to be judged. But see, these folks don't care because they're living out their faith. This is part of what their faith calls them to. This is their, their convictions about modesty and, and covering themselves. And they're willing to do it even though... Uh, it's, it's not the norm for the culture. They're being countercultural. And that's certainly a kingdom lesson that we need to learn. Uh, always be reminded of that because you can't live out the kingdom and not be countercultural. You can't live out the kingdom and not bump up against fundamental aspects of the culture. Um, not necessarily in, in, in how we dress, though it has some implications for that, but in terms of how we live and how we give and how we love. Um, and so I, I really respect this. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have noticed whether it's in a gym or at the marketplace or at the workplace or whatever, but there's an increasing number of Muslims here in the Twin Cities. Um, actually, the, the population has, has, has exploded over the last 15 years. Shelley and I and three other couples moved down into the city of St. Paul um, about 11 years ago. And we, we did that, one of the reasons was because we just loved the diversity of the, an urban environment. But it seems like 11 years ago, the diversity was primarily white, black, Asian, Latino. But now you go to the Target or the Walgreens or really anywhere, and Muslims are, have at least as, as, as great a portion of the diversity that is there. It's just a, a growing thing. In fact, in, in, the, in the Twin Cities, a little research on this. In 1995, there's roughly 20,000 Muslims in the Twin Cities in the metro area. And there were four mosques that served that population. 
Uh, now, as of 2011 anyways, that's the last year I could get statistics for, um, they had um, over 150,000 Muslims in the Twin Cities and the metro area. And there's 18 mosques or worship centers that serve them. Incredible growth. And that's somewhat exceptional, the, the, this rapid growth here in the Twin Cities. And it's happened for a number of reasons. But actually, you're finding this all over the place. In fact, in the United States, um, Muslims are the, uh, Islam is the fastest growing religion, as it is in Europe. It's, it's just really uh, exploding. So this is why I think this is a really important topic for us. Uh, that trend is not going to reverse. It's good for us to know some of what Muslims believe um, and uh, to be able to interact in intelligent, kind, and gen- generous, and, and uh, respectful ways with them. But here's the thing. I initially had planned on doing a little lesson on the history of Islam and giving some of the beliefs of Islam and, and how we can interact with that. I, I've debated Muslims in the past, so I have a little you know, repertoire of, I think, very compelling arguments that, that uh, can show that some of their beliefs are mistaken and things like that, and I was going to give a, a, that. As I was putting this message together, however, in light of some recent events, I really felt led to go in a different direction. Here's the thing, let me ask you, and you don't have to say this out loud, but be honest with yourself. If I say Islam or Muslim, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Yeah, probably if you're a Western non-Muslim, the first thing, uh, at least for a lot of us, even most of us, would be something like violence or terrorism or ISIS or Taliban or Al-Qaeda. And that's understandable that we have that association in our heads. It's understandable because we are, are we not, every day on the news, in the newspaper, whatever medium of information you rely on, every day it seems we are bombarded with information about what Islamic terrorists are doing. And, and we're, we're given these reports, these ghastly reports and these ghastly images of what's going on. And, and you can't help but hear about and read about um, the Muslim conflicts that are going on in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Liberia and North Nigeria. And it's all over the place. This is violence, perpetual violence. And you, you hear about these terrible acts where pe- innocent people are being blown apart in, in Paris and Canada. And people know, especially after 9-11, that it's just a matter of time before that happens here. Try as we might to avoid that. But that creates fear in people. And we have these ghastly images, unthinkable images of, of, of people being beheaded and, and, and burned alive. And these children in North Nigeria being kidnapped and sold into slavery. And, and it's, just, it's as demonic as it gets. And you look at those images, or even if you don't, and you just hear about them, your mind creates an image. And it, it's, it's, it's shocking It's horrifying and it creates strong emotions in us. It it pierces our heart. It gets seared into our brains. And you you have these strong emotions of grief and horror maybe, but also of anger, maybe even outrage. I mean, just two weeks ago when I was watching the news, um, it it was reporting on the ISIS smashing all of those monuments of ancient civilization, some of the oldest monuments and artifacts that we have, going back to ancient Mesopotamia, and they're just smashing them, and I, I just felt such anger at that. It's like little toddlers with, a, with, with, with these sledgehammers smashing this priceless stuff. You can't replace. It survived thousands and thousands of years, and now it's gone because these folks don't like it. Oh, it just, 
And that's minor compared to the other things that they've done, beheading people and, and whatever. And you, I, I, I get it. You, you, you look at that, it's just like grief and, and anger. It's just like, ah. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Our minds operate by drawing associations. That's part of what our brains do. We, we, we see patterns. We're able to see patterns. And especially when we're afraid, the mind becomes very intent on drawing connections. It's a self-protection device. This is scary. What else is like this? And so we start to start, go draw connections. And the, our instinct is to be afraid of anything that's like this. And so if we're not careful, if we're not careful, that fear and the anger and the grief and the horror causes our brain to look at things that are like that. And if we're not careful, we begin to brand all Muslims on the basis of what the Islamic terrorists do. That fear can lead to stereotyping and categorizing and prejudice. And this, folks, is going on all over the place right now today. There is, throughout the world, a fear-based, very dangerous anti-Islamic sentiment that is rising. Here in America, in France, in Germany, I don't know if you've ever heard of the organization Pegida, uh, having these protests where increasing numbers every week are joining in them, and it's anti-Islamic, it's fear-based. And you add to that the rapid growth of Islam, which, which for some folks that's concerning enough, just how fast it's growing. People worry that, you know, that what happens if the Muslims become a majority population and then they vote democracy out and then we'll be ruled under Sharia law. People in France are worried about that right now as the Islamic population is growing. For some folks, especially in America, especially white folks in America, um, uh, the growth is, is in and of itself concerning. They look at the increasing diversity of the culture, and, and some folks are saying, man, this isn't the white majority ruled Christian nation that I was raised in. And they get fearful of that. And then, so you combine the, the suspicion, the worry about the growth, combine that with the images of horror and shock that are, we're bombarded with, and, it, and, and the two fuel each other, and so there is this fear-based, very dangerous, anti-Islamic sentiment that is rising in this world. And this is why I decided to go in a different direction. Because uh, it seems to me that the most important thing I can say about Islam is not really about Islam itself, but about us and our response to this rising anti-Islamic sentiment that is rising around the world. The thing is this, um, where you have that fear, where, where people are living out of that fear, you will have prejudice because the brain makes this, these associations. And where you have that prejudice, well, you're gonna, it, that gives way to hate, and hate invariably gives way to violence. If history's taught us anything, it's that where there is fear, they're going to have prejudice, and the prejudice will breed hate, and the hate will eventually lead to violence. Uh, especially when there's religion involved. When people operate out of the religious convictions, that violence tends to be all the more horrific. Uh, and that's what ISIS is demonstrating. But uh, it will spread if, uh, if, if this prejudice, this fear-based prejudice, keeps on growing and, and keeps on building this anti-Islamic sentiment. Pascal said this. I tweeted this this last week. An incredible quote. The people never do evil so completely and as cheerfully as when they do it from religious convictions. And that's a sad but undeniable truth. And Pascal is writing at a time when Christians are slaughtering Christians all over Europe. And so he's referring primarily there to, to Christian violence. But... Uh, it applies. When people start operating out of their, their, their faith convictions in violent ways, it gets all the more horrific. They feel justified and God's on their side. What concerns me now is that there are some people who are explicitly saying 
as they are operating out of a fear-based stereotype, the branding Islam itself as a violent religion. Increasingly, people are saying this publicly. Uh, Islam is inherently violent. And some are going to the next step saying we've got to do something about it. There's a blogger six months or so ago, who, a well-known blogger, who uh, posted this, this thing. He took it down in two days because the outrage was so big. But he, he was saying, look, at, we have got to stop this now. The only solution is to eradicate Islam. For Christians and non-Christians alike to rise up and eradicate Islam now, while we can still do it, we can win this thing. Because if we let it keep on growing the way it's growing, and it's inherently violent, well, then it's going to take over. And they're going to eradicate us. So here, I mean, look at the irony of this. Uh, Here is a Christian blogger calling on Christians to eradicate Islam, uh, engage in whatever violence is necessary to do that. And the reason that we're supposed to eradicate Islam is because it is an inherently violent religion. (laughs) Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But see, uh, this is is, is very concerning. History shows us that this train leads in one direction. And so I think the most important thing to say about Islam isn't about Islam itself, but about us. And the word here is just this, kingdom people, kingdom people. If you're a follower of Jesus, do not let yourself get sucked into that fear and get sucked into this anti-Islamic sentiment. Amen? Because it is antithetical to the core of who we are called to be. This fear that leads to prejudice, that leads to hatred, that inevitably leads to violence, it's antithetical to who we are called to be. We're called to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're called to love others, all people, with the same love that God has had for us. Now, here's what John says. He says, love casts out fear. It drives out fear. And perfect love, and there is no fear in love, and perfect love drives out all fear. And that's the kind of love that we are called to receive from God and the kind of love that we're, we're called to embody, a love that drives out fear. Because the truth is this. You can't love somebody and be afraid of them at the same time. And you can't love somebody and be prejudiced, prejudiced against them at the same time. You can't love somebody and hate them at the same time, and you certainly can't love somebody and engage in violence against them at the same time. Love drives out fear, therefore drives out prejudice, drives out hatred, and drives out violence. And that's the kind of love that we, as kingdom people, are called to embody. It is, it is our most fundamental calling to mimic God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, this, this anti-Islamic sentiment that's rising, this fear-based and dangerous anti-Islamic sentiment, it's not only ungodly, contrary to the kingdom, but it's also profoundly irrational. Um, here's the thing. The number of Muslims who are engaging in these horrendous acts of violence, it, it, it's a very, very, very small percentage of the whole Muslim population. A very small percentage. And we should never allow what a small minority does to jaundice our perception of the whole. Though if we let the fear grip us, that's exactly what begins to happen. Our brains just begin to draw all those associations. I said this uh, several weeks ago, but how would you like it if someone just judged you as being a racist and judged all Christians as being a racist because of groups like the Aryan Nation and the Ku Klux Klan who identify themselves as Christian, since they're racist, all Christians must be racist. You'll say, no, that's not fair. I, yeah, they profess Christianity, but I have, I've, that's a totally different religion than, my, than, than, than mine. But see, that is, this is exactly what a lot of Western non-Muslims are doing to Islam. Based on what the small minority are doing, uh, they, they brand the whole. Now, it may seem like, in fact, it does seem like, the percentage of Muslims engaging in violence uh, is a higher percentage than the number of Christians who are involved in racist organizations. It may seem that way. 
But that's because what the small minority of Muslims are doing, they're trying to terrorize the entire world. And now with social media being what it is, they can do that. So we are bombarded with all these images, and the news picks up on this because it's newsworthy. So we're bombarded with this constant violence all over the place uh, done by Islamic extremists. So it does appear that uh, that's what Islam is, or at least a large percentage are. But as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it's a very, very small minority. Consider this. There are 1.6 billion Muslims on the planet right now, 23% of the world, and it's growing very fast. Mostly because they have big families, but some through conversions. Now, according to the U.S. intelligence, uh, their estimation is that there are between 9,000 and 18,000 ISIS fighters. I'm surprised to find that there's such a disagreement between these two organizations, but the FBI estimates that there's between 20,000 and 31,500 ISIS fighters. And that number is disputed by a a lot of uh, uh, experts in this field, saying that that's very inflated. But be that as it may. That means, folks... That compared to the entire population, Islamic population, there is somewhere between 0.00006% on the low end and 0.0002% on the high end of the total Muslim population is involved in ISIS. Uh, That's six one millionths of 1% on the low end and two ten thousandths of 1% on the high end. So even on the high estimate, the number, the percentage of Muslims involved in ISIS would be something like you earning $50,000, and that percentage would be one penny of your total income. It's a minuscule population. And even if you put all of the groups together, all these terrorist groups together, you know, the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda, um, and, and all, just put them all together, you still don't arrive at more than one one-hundredth of one percent of the entire Muslim population. It's musical. It appears very differently because that's what's on the news and that's what we're bombarded with. But the truth is that it's a very, very small minority. Now, it's, it's true that the Quran does not have a prohibition on violence the way the New Testament does, the way Jesus and Paul prohibited all violence. And, and there's nothing in the Quran that says love your enemies. No, in fact, there's instructions to take vengeance against them. That's true. You don't have any command like love your enemies and, re- and refrain from retaliation such as we find in Jesus and Paul. On the other hand, what percent of the Christian population actually adheres to that New Testament teaching? <laughs> very, very few take that seriously. Yeah, you know, we, I'm called to love my nasty mother-in-law and grouchy neighbor. But it, when someone picks up a gun, the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians are just as quick to grab a gun in retaliation as, as anybody else. So it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? It's also true that you find a lot of violence in the Quran. That's undeniable. I've read it several times, and there's, there's a lot of violence there. On the other hand, have you read the Old Testament lately? <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't want to be throwing the, the first stone at that one. If you're in a glass house, you don't throw stones. But see, here's the thing. I've interacted with a number of Muslim scholars who are pacifists, completely committed to nonviolence. There are a number of Muslims who are, are committed to never, retali- never retaliate, yet they believe in the Quran, but they have ways of interpreting it that, sh- that, that show that that violence doesn't apply to us, just like we have of the Old Testament, Right? Now, if a person wants to be violent, they can go to the Bible and find justification for it in their own head by appealing to that stuff. But we'd be up there saying, no, that's not legitimate. That's, that's, an, uh, that's a bad use of the Bible. Well, the vast, 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 vast majority of Muslims, even those who aren't pacifists, look at what these Islamic extremists are doing, and they're saying that is not warranted by the Quran. You're, you're applying it to your own, uh, uh, you're interpreting it in ways that just serve your own ambitions. 
So folks, don't get sucked into the stereotyping and into this fear. Um, it, 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 it's, 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 not, it's not even based on reason. It's based on a, a, a misperception. But actually, now the rubber hits the road. That actually is irrelevant. That actually is irrelevant. The percentage of Muslims who are violent uh, is irrelevant. Because even if the percentage of Muslims who were engaged in violence was much, much greater, a billion times greater, to the point where you might have justification for saying, gosh, the religion itself is violent. To the point where you might have justification for being afraid of the religion. Even if that was the case, it would not change one iota our call to live in love as Christ loved us. The call isn't dependent on the merits of the people that we're dealing with, or whether they're friends or whether they're foes. It's not based on that. It's based on the character of God. Uh, the character of God in his love towards us and the character that, that we're to display to all others. Our call to love all Muslims would remain completely unchanged even if they all carried guns and were dead set against uh, Christianity and wanted to exterminate Christianity from the earth. The call wouldn't be different. Because see, the love of God revealed on the cross is beautiful precisely because it applies to people for whom it doesn't make sense to apply like you and me. It's not limited to common sense or normality. No, it's, it goes way beyond that. It's beautiful and, and, and the, the, the fear that this love drives out is beautiful because it drives out fear even when it makes sense to be afraid. In fact, that's the most important time where we need to be driving out fear. Even when it makes sense, even when it is rational to be afraid of folks, which in this case it's not, but even if it was, that love still, should still be driving out fear. Because we're to be a people who live out of this love and we trust God in running the world and we trust God for our lives and if we die, we die. And we know that that's just a, a stepping stone to a much greater uh, part of this journey. And so we, don't, we have no fear. We trust our Father and we live in love as He has loved us. That's why Jesus could say things like this. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's pretty common sense. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't care. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? People you judge the most, the scum of the earth. Yeah, even they love like that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. No, you're called to stand out. You're called to be different. You're called to be countercultural. And here's how. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in this context, it's clear what he means by perfect. Be perfect in your love as the heavenly Father is perfect in your love. See, here's the thing. It is normal. It's commonsensical to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Everyone does that. It's totally commonsensical. It's normal uh, to love on the basis of merit. Do you deserve it or not? Do you warrant this or not? It's, it's normal in this fallen world to love on the basis of self-interest. I'll love those who benefit me in some way, but I'm not going to love those who threaten me in some way or who can detract from me in some way. That's normal. That's common sense. But see, that's not how God loves. God loves like the sun shines and like the rain falls. God, the, the sun doesn't choose who it's going to shine on. It just does what it does. And the rain doesn't choose who it's going to fall on. It just does what it does. Uh, it, it, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, you're going to get warm if the sun is out. And whether you're righteous or unrighteous, you're going to get wet when the rain falls. So also, whether you're holy or unholy, sinner, saint, violent, or, or peaceful, uh, the love of God is there, invariant. It's indis it, 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 it doesn't discriminate. 
Uh, it's unconditional. It's given based on the character of God, based on nothing else. That's the way God loves it. There's nothing normal about it. There's nothing commonsensical about it. That's why it's perfect. It's perfect because it's indiscriminate and because it's unconditional. And that is the kind of love that we are called to embody. That's the kind of love we're called to display. And we're empowered to do that because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our Father, dwells within us. And if we yield to that, 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 that love can drive out all fear and allow us to love even those that common sense would say you ought to be afraid of. That's why Jesus says that you're supposed to love your enemies. And this brings us to an even more radical point. You're supposed to love your enemies. And when he says enemies, he's not referring just to grouchy neighbors and nasty in-laws. In fact, when he says enemies, his audience, his Jewish audience in the first century, the first thing that would come to all of their minds are the Romans. Because the Romans, are the folks who are ruling them, have been for some time. And their rule was austere. Their rule was unjust. Their rule was oppressive. They would sometimes overtax people and then confiscate all the property and sometimes even their children if they couldn't pay. Uh, their rule, they ruled by terror. They would terrorize people. They kept law and order by keeping people afraid. And they were good at it. And so if anyone caused them any problem, if any group began to cause them problem, they would frequently ride into a town and slaughter the whole town. Or sometimes they just r- randomly... Uh, collect innocent individuals uh, or loved ones of the people who are causing problems and crucify them by the dozens, by the hundreds, and in a few cases we know about in history, even by the thousands, crucify them all along the hillside, leave them up a couple days to rot so the vultures could eat the eyes out and the rest. And they would do that to to be reminding people, you don't want to mess with us because this is how we respond to folks who mess with us. They, They install terror in people. So these Jews are being ruled by the terrorists. These are the enemies. And Jesus has the audacity to say, love your enemies. Do good to your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Do good to them. Pray for those who despitefully use you. It would be like, exactly like this, folks. It would be like if America had been conquered by ISIS or Al-Qaeda and were ruled by Sharia law. The way most Jews of the first century hated the Romans is exactly the way most Americans would hate the Islamic fundamentalists who were ruling over us. It would go that deep. And imagine in this context where we're being ruled by uh, ISIS. Um, along comes a preacher and says, love your enemies. Those enemies. Do good to those enemies. Pray for those enemies. Bless those enemies. Well, <laughs> all the normal people would be saying, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. It that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, they, they might, in fact, they, they would get mad at you. <laughs> they get very mad at you for saying such a thing. How dare you suggest that we're supposed to love them? No, we're supposed to hate them. In fact, you should be on our side trying to kill them, trying to liberate us. They might say, if, you're not, if you don't hate our enemies, then you're one of our enemies and turn on you as an enemy. Uh, That's exactly what happened with Jesus, by the way. Uh, let me give a little footnote here, okay, because it's Palm Sunday. And get asked a lot, well, how come you guys don't celebrate Palm Sunday? Uh, here's, here's my thinking. Look at it. Yeah, on Palm Sunday, he rides in, the triumphal entry, right? And all the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, hey, Hosanna, ho, Hosanna, all that. And they're waving the palm uh, branches. That's, that's right. That same crowd, a week later, is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, why? Well, it's because all these Jews, understandably, they wanted this miracle worker, to use this miracle power to liberate them. They thought that this is what the Messiah was supposed to do, is to kick the Romans' butt, get them out of here, vanquish them, rise up an army, and violently overthrow them. So yes, they're, they're worshiping what they think is going to be their military hero. So when he gets himself arrested, and it's clear that he's not going to do that, he's going to let himself get killed, 
Well, then they're, they're saying, give us Barabbas. Why? Because Barabbas was one of us. He was, he was an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. That's the kind of Messiah we want. Not this Yahoo who gets crucified. So why would we celebrate that worship? I, I, uh, to me, Palm Sunday is this. You know, it's like, uh, I, 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 I just haven't got it. Okay, so, so there's my two cents on that. But see... The, the, the normal folks would be saying, uh, this doesn't make any sense. And see, it, it doesn't on a common sense level. But there's nothing common sense about God. There's nothing normal about God. His love is not like an, the normal of this fallen world. What kind of normal deity, what kind of ordinary God would become a little baby, a human being, live the kind of life that Jesus lived, get himself crucified at the hands of his enemies, out of love for his enemies, when he just as easily could have snapped his finger and crushed his enemies. What kind of normal God does that? No, none of them. Read the history of religions. All the other gods do the opposite of that. They do what we expect them to do. They crush our enemies. They're on our side. They help us win wars. You know, the, the gods that ISIS are worshiping, that, those kind of gods, that's, that's kind of the Abravis God. That's the kind of God we want. Uh, this God gets himself crucified. There's nothing normal about that. But folks, that's exactly why God is beautiful as he's revealed in Jesus. Because he goes beyond the normal. He, he defies the common sense. And this is why the kingdom is beautiful and why we are called to be beautiful in just that same way. To put on a kind of love that doesn't make sense in this ordinary world, but that people who are hungry for this kind of love, who have a heart for it, they gravitate towards it. They're saying, yes, this is the way it's supposed to be. A love that doesn't put self-protection above the welfare of others. But rather, it loves like the, like the sun shines and like the rain falls. That's the kind of love we are called to embody and to be. And so we're called to love all Muslims at all times, in all conditions. No ifs, no ands, no buts. And that requires, amen, that we let the... Amen. And let that love drive out all fear. Drive out all fear and drive out categorization. And then get this, here's one more thing. And this is the most radical. Jesus says, love like this so that you will be children of your Father in heaven. This, Jesus is holding up this, this love. See, you can tell a child by, a child is a child of a parent by the resemblance. Oh, you're, you must be so-and-so's son because you've got the eyes, you've got this, whatever. Well, we'll be known as children of the Father when we resemble the Father in how we love. That's the distinguishing mark of a child of God. Uh, this is, this is the, the central thing, the criteria, the sine qua non of, of the kingdom. You look like the Father whose love it's like the sun that shines and the rain that falls, whose love is in, uh, indiscriminate and unconditional, given to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. That is what makes you a child of God. Now we know that you're under the reign of the Father's love. You're, you're, you're under that umbrella because you, in fact, have the character of the Father. You've been empowered and transformed to live in this kind of love, even when it makes no sense to do so. You would let uh, that love drive out fear even when it makes sense to be afraid. Uh, you have a love that goes beyond and even against the normal and the ordinary of the world. You have a willingness to even get crucified like Jesus did, if necessary, in order to manifest that kind of love. Just like the, the, the Muslim ladies at that gym are willing to be ridiculed and wear a hajib in the, in, in the, in the gym. You're, you're willing to stand out and pay whatever price you have to pay in order to embody that kind of love. That is the distinguishing mark of a child of God. So folks, this here is not a peripheral thing. This is the center of the center. This is the bullseye. This is the foundation of all foundations. This is an unqualifiable, uncompromisable, undilutable truth that we have to live by. And yet I submit to you, tell me if I'm wrong, but the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians in Christendom, especially here in America, 
Well, there is no teaching that's more watered down, if not completely ignored, than that one, that central one, the foundational one. It just gets ignored. We apply it to grouchy neighbors and nasty in-laws, but when it comes to the real enemies, the kind of enemies Jesus was actually talking about, well, now all bets are off. Now common sense is Lord of our life, not Jesus. It just doesn't make sense, so I'm just going to do it. Folks, this is a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. And what we're here to say is, is uh, the call is to be children of God, children of God to Muslim people and to all other people, children of God who don't love on the basis of merit or on what's in it for us or anything else. We just do it because our Father has done it to us, and we want to give that away. Amen? Amen. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, in in uh, a good percentage of churches in America, that would not be the response. And see, I get it if some listening to this message right now, are, you're a little knotted up. Because I, I get it. Just Because uh, I've been there. I, I, you know, it's a process coming to this. But part of your brain is saying, no way. And it's angry. Ugh, it's on Americans. I'm patriotic. You're going to get us killed with that kind of thing. And then part of your brain is saying, on the other hand, I can't deny that that's what Jesus said. And Paul said the same thing. And, and, and I'm calling. And so there's a conflict there. And I, I get that. I'm, I'm empathetic with that. I just encourage you always to come back to this, to this foundational truth. Who is Lord of your life? The common sense or Jesus Christ? And if you're a follower of Jesus, the choice has already been made. It's just a matter of getting consistent with it and getting your brain to line up with it. Okay, let me say one other word about uh, Islam here. Um, you know, so as we put aside the categories as we must and deal with, get free of the fear and therefore get free of the stereotypes, get, get rid of the categories. And we should do this with all people so that we can see individuals as individuals. This isn't just another Muslim or just another Buddhist or just another gay person or just another Southerner or just a whatever. No, this is an individual who's made in the image of God for whom Jesus died. They're one of a kind, absolutely, utterly unique in all eternity. There's no replica, and, and, and therefore we have to treat them and think about them and respond to them that way. You would never say, oh, this is just another 10-carat diamond. No, it's, it's one of a kind. And, and so uh, we can only do that when we're free of fear, because fear always categorizes. So be free of fear, and now you can see the beauty of the individual and relate to them in, in that way, showing kindness and respect and generosity and, and a willingness to listen uh, and, and a willingness to serve if the opportunity presents itself, and a willingness out of love to share your faith in Christ. Because that also is an act of love, which leads to this last point. Muslims and Christians have a lot in common. We, in terms of faith and practice, we have a lot, of, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot that's shared, a lot of convictions that are shared. But there's also a, a number, a large number of things that we disagree on. I mean, for example, uh, in the Quran, you'll find a number of Bible stories in the Old Testament are retold. And um, on the whole, the Quran agrees with the Bible, but they always put an Arab spin on things, which changes the meaning of things. For example, uh, they, you, you find the story of Abraham uh, in the Quran, and it agrees with the Bible in that it says that Abraham had two sons, uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And in the Bible, Isaac is the, the forefather of God's chosen people, right? But in the Quran, they reverse that. It's Ishmael who's the chosen son. And that's because Ishmael is the forefather of the Arabs, and the Arabs wanted to believe that they were the chosen people. And see, that's because these stories, as, as, as Arabs came in contact with Christians and Jews, they appropriated some of their stories and told them around campfires for uh, you know, decades and decades, maybe even centuries, before they ever got incorporated in the Quran. So what you have is an Arabian version of, of uh, the Bible story. 
I, as I've done with other groups that we've talked about throughout this series, I encourage you not to get to lock horns on those differences. Uh, it's good to be informed about the differences and to be able to talk about them in intelligent and calm and loving uh, ways. But I wouldn't make a big deal out of all those differences because at the end of the day, the important question isn't, what is your view of Isaac and Ishmael? The important question is, what is your relationship with Jesus? And if the relationship with Jesus gets settled, well, then we can talk about all these other issues. Uh, but with, with, why lock horns on those other issues if, this, if the Jesus issue isn't settled? So I always encourage people to uh, be discussing things, whatever they want to talk about, talk about, and do it in a kind and, and, and uh, generous and attentive way. But uh, always be looking for an opportunity to steer the conversation to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Muslims have a, a great respect for Jesus. They call him Isa. Great respect. In, in the Quran, uh, they agree with the New Testament that he was born of a virgin. They agree that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. They agree that he did miracles. They agree that he was a great prophet. The greatest prophet leading up to, to Muhammad in the Quran. They agree even that Jesus ascended into heaven. That, that, that one's kind of interesting, however, because they don't believe that Jesus was crucified, and therefore that they don't believe he rose from the dead. Um, they, in the Quran, it states that, that it states that a prophet of God would never die a death like that. Uh, in, in the Quran, it says that Allah simply made it appear that Jesus was crucified. And I've never understood why Allah would do that. Because uh, now all these Christians are, uh, throughout the centuries, believing this. Um, and there's different theories about how that happened. The, one guy I debated said that Allah made it appear that way by transforming the, the by causing one person to look exactly like Jesus. And that's the person who got crucified. Which I always thought, that poor sucker. You know, you're, you're sitting there just watching this parade, and all of a sudden you look like him, and now you're the one crucified. And I would have thought Jesus would have stepped in and said, oh, no, it's just a trick or something. You know, but now Jesus slips away. Anyways, don't lock horns on that, okay? Uh, that's that's in, something to talk about. But, but here's the thing. The real important difference is this. In, for all the respect they have towards Esau, in the Quran... It's considered to be blasphemous to think that he is divine, that he's more than human, uh, that he's the son of God, that he's God incarnate. Uh, that's considered blasphemy. It's, it's blasphemy to worship him and pray to him as though he was God because they think he was just an ordinary human. And because they think he was just an ordinary human, they don't think that, that he was ever crucified, well, then he doesn't, re- he doesn't reveal anything about God. He, he doesn't illustrate anything about God. And because they think he was merely human, there's nothing in his life, certainly not in, in his crucifixion, which they don't think happened, that, that saves us. In Islam, you're saved on your own merits. And so Jesus isn't the, the revelation of who God is, and Jesus isn't the Savior. He's just a prophet. And this changes everything. Because, see, in the New Testament, because the cross is central, Jesus is the revelation of God and it's centered on the cross, for that reason, God is defined as cross-like love. God is love, and love is defined by the cross, 1 John 3.16. And so... In the New Testament, God is revealed to be a God whose very essence, his eternal nature, is self-sacrificial love, other-oriented love, humble love. It's a beautiful picture of God. But see, in the Quran, you get a very different picture because Jesus isn't the revelation of God, and he's not the Savior. In the Quran, you find that God's referred to as being merciful frequently, but you never find anyone saying God is love. Allah is love. It doesn't happen. Or even Allah is loving. As I, the impression I get, frankly, as I read the Quran, is that, that love isn't really high on Allah's priority list. Um, you have a very, very austere portrait of God in the Quran. 
Much like you get in some sections of the Old Testament. This is a deity who at every turn is threatening people with eternal hell who fail him. And what's even more austere and not particularly beautiful is that whether you fail Allah or not is his decision. Because he decides everything. He chooses everything. Everything is fated. And if you fail him because he has predestined you to, well, then you'll suffer in eternal hell. And the Quran is full of some very lurid pictures of hell. And it goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, not exactly the portrait of the self-sacrificial God that we're given in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus isn't seen as being a savior, in the Quran, you're saved just on your own merits. Uh, so here's the thing. And this creates an, an opening, I think. The best opening as you're engaging with your Islamic neighbors and friends and co-workers, this is the opening, I think, to look for. Because here's the thing. Their picture of God and their religious system prevents them. They can be, they're very devout. Many of them are very devout. Some of their devotion would put us to shame. But see, um, they are prevented from ever knowing an intimate, loving, gracious relationship with God. Uh, they are prevented from ever feeling forgiven for free. That's just a foreign concept in the, in the Quran. Or being saved for free. Or being loved apart from your works. They're prevented from ever knowing that God uh, uh, ascribes unsurpassable worth to you regardless of what you've done. It, no, it's just because he's created you. They have, they're not able to experience that. They don't know what it is to be motivated uh, by love. You know, in the New Testament, Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. When you're, when you're worshiping the, and following the self-sacrificial God revealed on the cross, it's love that motivates us, not fear. In fact, the love that motivates us drives out all fear. But see, among Muslims, and this is just sad, but fear is the main motivation. You know, it's the austerity of, of, of Allah that you fear. So they're motivated by a promise of reward, but also by a fear of what's going to happen if they, uh, if, if they fail. Um, and, and so they don't know that unconditional love, the love that is like the sun shines and like the rain falls. They don't know that. But folks, everybody on the planet is hungry for that. Whether they know it or not, they're hungry for that. And so, and so if you have a relationship with God that does know the joy of being motivated by love rather than fear. If you have a relationship with God that, that fills you with the kind of love that drives out all fear. If you have a relationship with God where you have been are in the process of being transformed from the inside out, uh, you know the joy of ha having an intimate relationship with, with, with God. Uh, the joy of, of, of experiencing unsurpassable worth simply because he says you have this and he shows it on Calvary. If you have a relationship with God like that, then you have got something to offer these folks that their own, re their own religion prevents them from ever having. having. Rather than having fear of Muslims, we ought to have a compassion towards them. Because these are folks who are, I believe are imprisoned. Imprisoned in a religious system, as are many Christians. Imprisoned in a religious system, having a, a picture of God that just clouds his true beauty, and therefore they're kept from ever entering into the joy and transformation and power and beauty of a relationship with the true God through Jesus Christ. And if you can offer them this, there are some at least who will acknowledge that they're hungry for it, and now you can begin to be used by God to bring these folks into the beauty of the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of the, the God whose love shines like the sun and it falls like the rain. Uh, that's the most precious gift you can ever give anybody. And that's what we should always be aiming for as we have our relationships with our Muslim neighbors, brothers, and sisters. And so I'd summarize this whole series by just saying this. most fundamental thing to say is, do you have that kind of relationship that you can offer somebody who's starving? Uh, we all need to be cultivating on an ongoing basis the kind of relationship where we're experiencing 
the, 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 the power of his grace and the joy of his love and being transformed from the inside out. We, we all need to have time, set aside times, be disciplined about having times where you just bask in his love and hear him and see him and sense him and experience him loving you personally and drinking deeply of that indiscriminate, unconditional, unqualified love that he has for you. Because you can't give what you don't have. And as we get filled with that love, now it can begin to overflow in our life. Now it begins to drive out all fear. Now it empowers us to see individuals rather than categories. Now it empowers us to love even our enemies. You see, uh, whoever we're talking to, it's good to know something about the beliefs and talk in intelligent ways about it uh, that reflect love. But the most important thing in all this is as we communicate with people, are we communicating to them the truth that they are worth Jesus dying for? That's the center of the center, uh, that we communicate and how we, and how we communicate and how we uh, interact with them, the kindness we show, the attentiveness we give, the humility we demonstrate. Are we communicating that these are people who are, have unsurpassable worth? They're not a category. No, they're an individual, a one-of-a-kind, made in the image of God, for whom Jesus died, and our number one job is to reflect that to them. But we can never do that if we ourselves aren't getting it. Get the love and give the love. Let's live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. The love he gives us is the love we're we're to uh, display to all people at all times. Amen? That's it in a nutshell. Praise God. What a beautiful God we serve. Beautiful. I I just love talking about him because, you know, it would be so hard to talk about an ugly God. I I just, I don't know how you saw that. You, You have to use fear. You have to use fear. So fun to just put on display the beauty of God. Would you stand? And I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here this morning and uh, have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, come up here and talk to these folks and let them pray for you. Um, remember to send in your questions. I bet you have a few questions about this message, I would suspect. Um, and if you want to become a follower of Jesus, this is the day to do it. This is the day to do it. So come up here and, and talk to these folks and they'll explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus and surrender your life to him. As we leave, leave here, I pray that... We, by the power of the Spirit, are a people who are disciplined in receiving the outrageous, scandalous, non-normal, atypical, non-commonsensical, but altogether beautiful love of God, and that that would fill us to overflow in all of our relationships so that we see people, not categories, and we live fearlessly and boldly in the love of the Almighty God, whose sun, whose love shines like the sun does and whose love falls like the rain does. It's indiscriminate, unconditional. May we be a people who love like that. In Jesus' name, and all of God's children said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Love like the Father.